0: Warning. This episode contains violence, racist language, and scenes that some listeners may find distressing.
1: I believe it was morning. I was working the morning shift, and I'm in headquarters.
0: And we hear a report of shots fired. Meet Tina. She's just come into HQ for what she expected to be a regular early morning shift. And suddenly, it's all kicking off. Officers are being dispatched. Others are standing on guard. Then, a message is announced. More officers are needed at the scene of the crime. They need backup to secure the circumference. A young man has abducted his ex-girlfriend and her child. His child. And he has a loaded gun. He's on the loose. His motive isn't clear. At this point, he's well and truly part of a high-speed chase being hunted by police by air and on land. Meanwhile, Tina is sent to the house where the hostages were abducted. So we kind of secure the house, looking for certain things. And the phone rang. It's the kidnapper. The calls picked up by the hostage negotiator, a highly ranked officer with decades of experience.
1: And they're talking about, you know, just surrender and just going back and forth
0: and the suspect hangs up. This happened two or three times. The negotiator was getting nowhere.
1: And I was in the living room with the uh, officer, and I said, um, hey, can I try? The negotiator was reluctant, dismissive. And he looked and he said, "Um, like, the year was like, yeah, almost, but if I
0: can't do it, I know you can't get through to him, you know? But after failing time and time again, he was running out of options. So, I got on the phone. Tina takes a deep breath and starts a conversation with the man. He's apologetic, regretful. He says he's on his way to a relative's house. He says he doesn't want to hurt his ex-girlfriend or his baby. Then he says something that takes Tina by surprise.
1: He says, you know what? The only person I'm going to surrender
0: them to is you. From Curious Cast and Blanchard House, I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue, Behind the Badge. Episode five, Triple Threat. So far, this show has mainly focused on Black men in policing. You've heard from Michael Morrison, Michael Sapp, and Larry Washington. Tina's also a cop, a Black cop, just like them. But in one crucial way, her experience could not be more different. It's simple. She's a woman. Tina is part of the just around 2% of US law enforcement who are Black women. Her experience is a rare one, and a particularly difficult one. That's why we can't tell you her real name, or where she works. But it's also why it's so important we tell her story. So where were we? The experienced hostage negotiator, a man, a white man, hasn't been able to talk the kidnapper around. And the kidnapper, holding his ex and his child hostage at gunpoint, won't deal with anyone else but Tina. Now, the reason the story is so important is because of what happened afterwards, or rather, what didn't happen. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Tina. Here's her account of events. She's got the kidnapper on the phone. Long
1: story short, he says, you know what? The only person I'ma surrender them to is you. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I call. My supervisor, like, hey, he said the only person he's going to surrender them to
0: is me. Tina is in the house where the abduction took place. The kidnapper's got his ex and their kid in the car, and he's driving fast. And then he says, "Okay, let's go. He wants Tina to get in the car and meet him someplace. A man with a gun. With two hostages. And you're the only person he'll speak to. How would you feel? And
1: I I get goosebumps now, because I was so nervous. And I'm like, okay, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm gonna do this, because I'm not this uh, hostage negotiator officer, you know, certified or anything. So I'm just going up and I'm just like, okay, God, you gotta use me. I'm nervous. I'm praying that I don't say the wrong thing and it all goes bad. and so I end up calling my pastor going the way up there. I'm like, okay, I'm on my way. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. He was like, calm down. I said, I can't. I'm crying. It was just, I was so, so
0: nervous for the, what if it goes bad? One of the things we do when we're under severe pressure is imagine the worst case scenario. We all do it, but it feels as though women do it more than men. In this case, Tina was no exception. But failing wasn't really an option right now. They agree to meet.
1: So finally I end up getting there and they put a vest over me, they have a shield and they tell me, listen, you can't go to the car. And I said, okay, I don't have to go to the car but I just want to speak to him to let him know that I'm here. So now it's a part of gaining his
0: trust. You said you wanted me here. I'm here. It was time for Tina to step up. The negotiations begin. And I just started talking to him, like, hey, listen, I'm a
1: mom. You know, I understand this thing you're going through, but there's a better way. I said, and understand that they are officers that are on, like, ready. You know, they're officers on top of the roof, there were officers behind bushes, you know,
0: their weapons are out. I can't decide if Tina chose her words carefully here or if she just spoke from the heart. I'm a mum. Being a mother is a huge part of Tina's identity. Actually, she says it's the main part of her identity. And if you ask me, there's something about being on the phone to a mum, especially when you're feeling distressed that just makes things feel better. Tina was negotiating with the kidnapper for hours. Water bottles were passed back and forth, down the line of cops, to Tina, and finally to the kidnapper and the hostages. But it's a standoff. So I said, listen, you
1: have to surrender. You have to take your time. You have to let me have the baby and the girlfriend. And after a
0: while of talking, he said okay. The standoff had lasted more than 12 hours. Now, the way I see it, the fact that Tina was a mum clearly made a massive difference. But there's one more thing I want to touch on another level of empathy that Tina brought to the situation. This young man, the kidnapper, he was armed with a handgun, he was black. Now, of course, professional hostage negotiators are highly skilled and trained to resolve situations like this. But it was Tina's intrinsic qualities as a mum and as a Black woman that made her the perfect person for the job that day. The job of talking down a man with a gun. Tina is pretty humble about the role she played.
1: I was grateful they were able to arrest him without incident, which was absolutely amazing. And that
0: wasn't the end of her involvement.
1: After that, we had to transport him. And I was actually in the car with him and we have two officers in the front. And like I said, he did wrong. There is no excuse for what he did. But in my mind, I was like, listen, you've been doing this since this morning. You must be hungry.
0: In all fairness, Tina has a point. He hadn't eaten all day. So the guys was like, what do you mean you're going to give
1: him something to eat? And I'm like, listen, he's having a really, really bad day. You know, he is in a lot of trouble. But you can't tell me he's not
0: hungry, you know, so they kind of teased me about that. They called her Mother Tina and the nickname stuck, but Tina couldn't help herself.
1: I ordered him something from the diner, somebody picked it up. I believe he wanted a hamburger or a cheeseburger or something, and
0: and I let him eat. Feeding is a way of loving, a way of mothering, a way of caring.
1: I say, I guess, all of that to say that we still have to follow the law, you know. There's no deviating from the arrest or any charges because he broke the law, but He's also somebody's child. He's a human being, and he's been doing this all morning. I'm telling you, it had to be 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. It was an all-day thing. Now, I mean, it's not okay, but we kind of have to kind of separate the two. We still got to proceed on what we have to do, by all means necessary. But you still got to get the humanity
0: part to it, too. Humanity. Of course, what the kidnapper did that day was wrong. Totally wrong. It must have been utterly terrifying for his girlfriend. I just can't imagine. And to put your own child through all of that? But context is always important. Apparently, the kidnapper was battling mental health issues and had been in and out of prison. So for Tina, it's not that clear-cut. Good and bad isn't that binary. And that meal that she got him from the diner that night turned out to be the last he had as a free man. He's still in prison today. I don't
1: excuse it by no means, but it was just that little piece of separation.
0: Listening to Tina's account, it seems that without her, things could have ended very differently that day. She's the reason it was dubbed a successful arrest. But was she recognized by her department? Was she celebrated? According to Tina, certainly not.
1: You know who gave me an award? Someone out of the county. My department didn't give me any awards or anything. This is for the hostage situation? For the hostage situation, yes.
0: Why don't you think you received an award internally? I wasn't in the in crowd. I wasn't one of the favorites. And that's also why Tina felt she was held back, wasn't promoted, didn't reach her full potential as a police officer when she should have.
1: It was difficult. I don't want to downplay that at all. It really, really was, especially because I wanted to do so much, you know? I wanted to go to different units. I, There was things that I really wanted to do, but I feel that he really hindered
0: some of that. More on that later. Tina says she wasn't recognised for what she did to resolve the hostage situation because she wasn't one of the favourites. We'll come back to that. But the way she dealt with the situation got me wondering, what kind of a person can defuse such a high-risk scenario? A situation that's a matter of life and death. Who exactly is Tina? And why does her role as a Black female officer really matter? I hope you're enjoying your retirement. I hope it's, it's, a, it's a good new chapter for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tina's not a cop anymore. And life is good. She lives in a small, bright, top-floor apartment, looking out over a tree-lined suburban road. Inside, it's neat as a pin and extremely clean. A grey, eight-seater, L-shaped sofa frames the living room, facing a large studio photo of Tina and her children. It was taken more than 20 years ago. They're all looking straight at the camera, leaning on each other, lovingly. Colourful photos of her wedding and her family fill one wall. The other is dominated by a painting of an imagined meeting between Barack Obama, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. Powerful stuff. It's not just her gender that makes Tina stand out from the others we've interviewed for this show. Unlike the male officers, law enforcement runs in her family. It's in her blood. And it's always been part of her life.
1: My uncle was on horseback.
0: I had another uncle
1: who worked for the county police. I had cousins who were FBI agents uh,
0: they also were in the military. You see my point. Tina was born in Queens and raised by her grandparents. She had a great time growing up.
1: We lived maybe three houses from Baisley Park. And I would always go and play handball. That's one of my fondest memories there. We just had fun. Outside,
0: get dirty, fun. I had a great childhood. Baisley Pond Park, an oasis in South Jamaica, more commonly known as The South Side, home of rappers 50 Cent, Waka Flaka, and Nicki Minaj. The park stretches over 100 acres, home to sports fields, running tracks, and family barbecues and cookouts. Back in elementary school, playing handball at Baisley Pond Park was one of Tina's favorite things to do. She didn't have any siblings, but like Mike Morrison, she had her crew. Her block housed a lot of Black and Latino families, so there was always someone to play with. Together, these kids ran the show, and Baisley Pond Park was the place to be. Back then, you were sent outside. Go outside and play. So we did—and
1: it was okay to do so also, you know? And um, and we played, climbed trees, running, relay races in the middle of the
0: street, Hopscotch, double dutch, like, we played. <laughs> <laughs> Tina and her friends grew up on the streets of the South Side. It was a place for them to explore and to grow. It felt safe, calm, free. We didn't have a lot of police presence around my
1: area. In Queens, like, you didn't see the police walking the block or patrolling the park, you know,
0: like you do now. You didn't see that. Tina is extremely nostalgic. She could talk about her childhood and upbringing for hours, about how much fun she had as a kid, and how grateful she is that she grew up before the era of technology kicked in. She loved high school, too. It was the mid-90s that things got tough. She was a young, single mum with kids to support. She'd moved away from where she'd grown up, and she had some decisions to make.
1: I knew now I have to really, you know, work and to be able to support my family and so on and so forth. And
0: I took the police test. So like Mike Morrison, there was a financial reason for joining the police. Quite frankly, she needed the money. And remember, police work can pay well and is a stable career. Tina knew that from her other family members on the force there was another important motivation, one you don't really think about. Tina is a caring person, a loving, caring person.
1: So having that in my heart and um, needing to make sure that I was able to provide also kind of, I guess, kind of intertwined. And I, and I saw it, you know, I was, I, I was kind of tangible to it and I just took the test. I don't know if I gave it
0: thought, it's just who I am. So Tina took the police test and became an officer. But being a woman in law enforcement was far from easy. The reality of working in such a male dominated world was rough. She was one of very, very few.
1: So when I arrived, I might have been the seventh or eighth female.
0: Now, I'd love to be able to accurately tell you all about the stats around Black women in law enforcement. But honestly, that information is really hard to find. American law enforcement is a seriously complex ecosystem. Not all agencies gather the same data or report it in the same way. But we do know the numbers in local law enforcement agencies. These actually make up the majority of full-time sworn police officers in the US. And as of 2020, just 2.8% of them were Black women. That's just 13,000 out of nearly half a million. Basically, Tina found herself part of a minority within a minority.
1: I had a lieutenant who was a white female, excellent person, but she retired maybe like a year or two after I got there. I came on with a Hispanic female, two other African-Americans and maybe two other white females. However, they shortly retired too. So we end up being like five females in like this predominantly male profession.
0: Five women out of 160. Five. Now, being outnumbered as a woman in the workplace isn't unusual, but in policing, an industry that has such a high level of men and a high level of toxic masculinity, as we've heard in previous shows, this feels different.
1: It was like mixed reviews. I did feel a lot of times that the guys felt I wasn't capable, I wasn't strong enough, I wouldn't run fast enough. And it had to take some situations to say, oh,
0: that's our girl. Every day, Tina was working to prove herself to her male colleagues. She had no choice. It
1: was when I would have to go to some of the older guys. Oh, sit in the passenger side, don't touch the radio, you can't drive, all of that, you know. But it was whatever, because I wanted to be
0: the first one jumping out the car anyway, so it didn't matter to me, (laughs) you know. It's a universal experience women proving to men in the workplace that we're good enough. And that's without bringing in that extra layer, race.
1: So it took a lot of quietly proving myself kind of unknowingly, you know, just to be out there and just to be able to do these things.
0: But time and again, Tina did prove herself more than prove herself.
1: There was a gentleman that was my partner and he was a little standoffish for a time. So, it came a day, this one particular guy ends up getting shot, and who comes and drags him to the car? Mind you, a big guy, I would say about 6'2", you know, big guy. And he couldn't walk, but I dragged him across the street, And I said, listen, I need you to push with this one leg you have. Put him in the car and took off, went to the hospital. And I tell you, his demeanor changed immediately.
0: After that incident, the way this officer treated Tina totally changed, like night and day.
1: His mother knitted me a
0: blanket. I ended up getting an award. But even before this incident, Even though it bugged her at times, Tina didn't really let her male colleagues stop her from being her best self. She battled the doubt that would seep through the cracks because she wanted to be there. And she deserved it. I just didn't let that stop me.
1: Like I said, I I wanted to be outside. I wanted to do the running. I wanted to do the climbing. So I wasn't the dainty little girl or woman that they thought I would be.
0: Tina just kept going. Not only did she want to be there, she needed to be there. Because police agencies need more women. Research by Georgetown University shows that female officers are less likely to use excessive force, more likely to implement police work involving members of the community, and are more likely to be effective at tackling violence against women. Tina was a mother, a Black woman, a police officer, who was growing confidently in her own skin. Yes, she was a cop, but she always wanted to be true to herself, not to become someone different when she put on that navy blue uniform. And there was one principle she prized above all others, fairness. I tried to be as fair as
1: possible, as understanding as possible on both spectrums. I did understand that a, a lot of people behaved a
0: certain way because of their ignorance to the law. You can call it her policing style or her personality, but either way, it's pretty clear. Tina is an empath. She's super in touch with the feelings and emotions of people around her. Her gut instinct is to give someone the benefit of the doubt, to work things out.
1: I always tried to understand circumstances. I always want to know the why, if I may. When these bad behaviours happen,
0: we all make mistakes. How can I help? How can I reroute it? As time went by, more women joined the department and so did more Black officers too. The department began to actually reflect the community it policed. When Tina joined in the 90s, she says the department was majority white. Fast forward 10 years and it crossed the threshold of being majority Black. So male Black officers were present and normal. But as a woman, Tina was noticed, even by aunties who were just out and about in the city.
1: I remember sometimes walking into the diner and your older women would say, oh my goodness, you look good in the uniform, or I'm so proud, you know. So most of the time it was that. But like, I tell you what, I think I had more resistance from females than males.
0: Yeah, Tina was definitely noticed. But the ones who clocked her and didn't like what they saw, they actually tended to be young Black women.
1: The mouth, you know, the mouth or what you can't do or take off your gun and badge, you will fight. And I'm like, oh my goodness, really? It was always, it seems like a verbal, it was just the combativeness with the women, I would say was, was worse to me.
0: Tina is unapologetically herself, but she's dealing with all these other people's perceptions of her, whether it's white male colleagues or residents who are Black women. This is where the real intersectionality comes in. Being a police officer, being Black, and being a woman. Tina is perceived as a threat, a triple threat. Despite this, Tina was determined to connect with people in their moments of need. She became known for her hard work and calm manner, and she was proud of that.
1: Sometimes I will be called to scenes, like, because they know I'm this nurturing type of talking and patient type of person that they'll say, hey, we need to see you over here and, you know, when maybe I
0: can talk to them. And that's exactly why she managed to defuse that armed hostage incident we heard at the start of the show. The one she says she didn't get credit for? I told you we'd find out why. Well, it's time.
1: If I had to go to that job tomorrow and he was there, I would not be saying this. There's no telling what the man might do.
0: That's next.
1: Okay, um, what was he like? <sighs> I'll leave it off if like I can say the words I want to say.
0: <laughs> Tina is trying uh-huh. to describe how she saw her former boss, <laughs> no, 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 a police no, 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 no. chief. Um, The words don't come easily.
1: How would I explain to him? I think he was politically driven. I believe that his power got the best of him. Like I really believe he abused his power, he had his favorites, and that was just it. And either you was his favorite or not, period. And guess which
0: category Tina says she was in?
1: If you're not in the in crowd, if you're not dating somebody that's a supervisor, or if you're not one of the ones who hang out and go to the parties and, do certain things that they do, you will be left out, definitely.
0: Now, we've heard a lot about Maplewood PD in this series. From what we've heard, Maplewood also had a pack mentality. But while its chief was white, Tina's boss was Black. So in this case, race didn't make a difference. It wasn't about race. It was about power. And to Tina, It seemed this chief wanted complete obedience, whether you were Black or white. Did a lot of officers feel that way if they were to go against the chief, that they would would suffer the consequences? I would say yes. If the chief in question was still in charge, Tina wouldn't even be talking to me because of what she sees as the possible consequences. If I had to show
1: up to that job tomorrow and he was a chief, it would be no way I would move forward with this at all, because of
0: what might happen. For Tina, this police chief really made her life tough. I mean, really tough. Despite the time and effort she put into her work, she says she was never put up for promotion or able to move departments to gain experience. According to Tina, it was his way or the highway. Working for this man sent her into a bad place. She was anxious, as if walking on eggshells all the time, always in her own head.
1: I would have sleepless nights thinking about, oh my gosh, I got to go to work tomorrow. I have to see him, deal with him. What is he going to say next? Who is he going to have watching me?
0: Tina was starting to struggle, really struggle. And people started to notice.
1: I was coming out of headquarters, and this particular officer was coming in and he says, you look crazy. You don't look like you've rested. You look like you're not eating. He was like, you have to stop worrying about him and what he's gonna do. It was overwhelming, I'm telling you. It was it was difficult in those years.
0: Working in what she describes as a controlling, overbearing environment fed Tina's self-doubt eroded her self-esteem, even when she took time off, the feeling lingered. This isn't about race, but even so, it's not all that different from the cultures we've encountered at Transit and Maplewood throughout the series. Listening to Tina's account, it's about power, control at all costs, and if you dare to stand up to leadership, well, prepared to suffer the consequences. Years later, once the chief had left, the relationship was unexpectedly brought up again when she ran into one of her former fellow officers. He
1: was getting ready to retire. He calls me into the parking lot and apologizes to me, Sarah. I really apologized because he was the supervisor. You know, he could have denounced it.
0: And that man apologized
1: to me, Sarah.
0: The regret, an apology offered privately. Now it's safe to do so. And Tina's response? And I embraced it. I really did.
1: I accepted it. No hard feelings, you know. But I told him, I said, listen, no worries. I understand. You know, because he'll reroute your whole career. He'll reroute it.
0: Tina says the culture under this chief had a lasting impact, not just on Tina, but on her family too. He was a part of my home, my children. And she says the hangover of his reign lingered in the most insidious ways.
1: My son had to be maybe 8, 9, 10, and we were looking for homes. Let's say his call sign was 350, right? We're looking for houses. My son sees the address of this house and says, "Oh no, Mommy, that's 350 Alexander Street." But that was his call sign. This is my son because he heard that number all the time and I he, you know, he had to attribute it, the number
0: to not good, you know, fear, unsafe. Feeling hostility at work is not uncommon for women. And it's most definitely not uncommon for Black women. The University of Illinois finds that, to this day, Black women are still significantly underpaid and undervalued. They receive less mentorship and are less likely to be promoted than any other demographic in the U.S.
1: It was difficult. I don't want to
0: downplay that at all. Too often, there are no consequences. But this particular chief's behavior would eventually be challenged. Some of Tina's colleagues blew the whistle, accusing him of threats and retaliation. There was a misconduct investigation. He denied any wrongdoing. The whistleblowers received a six-figure settlement from the police department. But it wasn't until years later that the chief was found to have violated multiple department rules, resulting in a suspension. Even now, Tina still fears retribution, but she won't keep silent. If I would have led my career
1: on, on being hindered of not being one of the favorites, I wouldn't be here.
0: Tina's story takes me back, right back to the beginning of this year and the death of Tyree Nichols, killed by five Black police officers. Because the truth is that when it comes to law enforcement, Even inside law enforcement, it's not just about race. It's actually more about power. And having too much power is often corrupting. When I asked Tina about her thoughts on being in a Black-led police department, she said the race of her chief made no difference. She says all he cared about was whether he was obeyed or not. Working with that chief was tough, but once he'd gone, things started to get better.
1: A lot of prayer, a lot of tears, a lot of headaches, a lot of not wanting to go to work. Believe me. But it
0: worked out. In fact, once the chief left, Tina says she was quickly promoted. The final years of her police career were her happiest and made up for all the years of misery. But she says the department itself was in bits. She would try to raise morale by cooking her team lunch and making them laugh by being Mother Tina. Tina was happy and proud at her retirement party. She says she doesn't have one good photo from the day because, thanks to the kind words of her colleagues, she was crying the whole time. She insisted that all of this more than made up for the past hardships. But still, I can't help but wonder whether some of those tears... Amongst the tears of relief and gratitude, were tears lamenting what could have been. And every now and then, Tina receives a reminder of what the job really meant to her, why she joined, and why she was needed.
1: Maybe about two, three months ago, I'm shopping at the local grocery store, and this lady says, You are a cop. And I'm like, Oh boy, (laughs) you know, like, so she says, I remember you came to my house and you helped me with my daughter. And she starts to tell me, oh, my daughter's doing good. Like those things are gratifying. That's rewarding to me. So even if I didn't receive a plaque, you know, that is a big deal.
0: Next time on Black and Blue Behind the Badge, we head back to Maplewood and the town has its darkest night.
1: This was a situation that was completely ginned up by the police officer's response here.
0: You've been listening to Black and Blue, a Blanchard House production for Curious Cast. Black and Blue is hosted, written, and produced by me, Seren Jones. Script consultant, Soraya Shockley. The sound recordist is Vulcan Kizaltuk. Original music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nankmannel, and Toby Matamong. Sound design and mix engineering is by Toby Matamong. Voice coaching by Vicky Merrick. The managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizel. The executive producers are Charlie Bell and Lawrence Grizel. For Curious Cast, the executive producers are Dile Velasquez and Chris Duncombe.